I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. song that Sister Sue sung a second ago goes hand in hand with what Sister Jane was teaching on this morning and really hand in hand with what I will be preaching about today with the help of the Holy Spirit. You cannot live right for God until you say yes to the Lord. It's an impossibility. But before we get further into that, uh, Galatians chapter 5 beginning at the 22nd verse. If you're there, say Amen. Galatians chapter 5. Are we okay? <laughs> That's the thought that counts sometimes. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Uh, Paul writing, the Word of God reads like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. I want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit this morning with the help of the Spirit talking about the fruit of the Spirit today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us, God. We thank you for this great weekend that you've given us, Lord, uh, this time that you've given for most of us in this place to catch up on some much-needed rest from last week, God. And we thank you further, Lord, for all of the great blessings that you give us each and every single day, God. Lord, we love you. I ask that you anoint me to properly minister what you'd have me say today, God. And I ask that you anoint each of us to receive from your word what you'd have us receive, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory and honor in this place. And we say all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 I don't mean to sound repetitious uh, when it comes to the book of Galatians, but... Uh, we need to know what's going on. There's a very specific reason why Paul is telling these Galatians to walk in the Spirit. It's because contrary to walking in the Spirit, these Galatians are walking under the authority of the Mosaic Law, which they should not be doing. The Apostle Paul, in his, I believe, second missionary journey, traveled through uh, a group of mainly Gentiles that we call the Galatians. And he ministered to these Galatians, whether or not he just evangelized to them or perhaps even established an entire church there himself uh, with the Galatians. We don't know, but we know for sure that it was Paul who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Galatian believers. Um after he left the Galatians and he continues on his missionary journeys, he receives word at some point that a group that we call today Judaizers, people who were probably Pharisees, Jewish men of the Judaistic religion, 
had gotten into this Galatian church and they had begun to influence the Galatians and tell them that while faith in Christ and this finished work is pretty good for salvation, you're not really obtaining salvation until you are keeping the law of Moses, the law of specifically the Old Testament. And they had begun to influence these Galatians and telling them that justification, salvation with God comes majorly, if not totally, by the keeping of the law, which is heresy. And the book of Galatians is very important for believers today because there are still many Christians who fall into this trap that you can obtain righteousness with the living God by doing good stuff. That's heresy, and that doctrine will send you straight to hell if you die believing in that. Don't ever think that your goodness tops the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that we ought to be putting our faith in, and we ought to be depending on, trusting in, and that goodness of God is totally realized in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you and I 2,000 years ago. You don't add goodness to that. You don't add further suffering or goodness on top of the goodness that Christ has afforded for you, on top of the suffering that Christ has already suffered for you and I. You and I don't add to it, and we cannot take away from it either. It's either Christ or it is absolutely nothing. Sister Jan, thank you for that teaching this morning. I can sense the leading of the Spirit in this church service. You either say yes to the Lord or you say no to the Lord. You either trust in the Lord or you don't trust in the Lord. You're either sold out to God in His way, and His way is established by the cross of Calvary. Make no mistake about that. Or you're simply not sold out. Sister Jen taught either last week or, no, I believe you taught last week, didn't you? Sister Jen taught a couple of weeks ago how there never was such thing as an in-between Christianity. It never existed. Nobody ever got half saved. You are either saved or you're not. You are either walking with God or you're not. You are either living for God or you are not living for God. To be away from your source is to be lukewarm. And we know what Jesus says about those who are lukewarm, that he spits them out of his mouth, as John would write in Revelation. And that phrase, to spit out, to spew out, actually has more to do with vomiting. It disgusts God in a way uh, whenever people drift from their source into lukewarmness. And that's what lukewarmness really has to do with, with someone who has drifted away from their source. That's why God says in Revelation, I'd rather you be hot or cold instead of lukewarm because I want you to be at your source. And the source for the believer is Jesus Christ. That's the source for the child of God. Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, has been telling them that you do not obtain righteousness through the law. And for us today, on a more broad range of uh, discussion, that would simply mean you don't obtain righteousness with God based off of what you do. God doesn't operate on the basis of what John Washington does. God operates on the basis of His grace which is a very good thing, and it's exactly what John Washington needs, because if all I have to, if all I have going uh, with me, between me and God, is simply what I have done, I haven't earned my way into heaven, I've earned my way into hell, if all I have going for me are my works. 
I don't have anything in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own intelligence that's going to grant me passage into heaven. But by the grace of God, I can. By His grace. By His grace. By His grace. And Paul, throughout the book of Galatians, is doing three things. I've talked about this before. Paul is defending the gospel the gospel that he has preached to these Galatians, which is the gospel. He opens up the book of Galatians by making it very firm to these people that another gospel does not exist. Another gospel is not out there waiting for you. There is no such thing as the gospel of the law, the gospel of the works. It doesn't exist because God hasn't given that gospel God's gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done, who he is, and us depending on that every day of our lives. That's the gospel. Paul is defending the gospel by giving his own testimony. Here you have a bunch of Judaizers infiltrating, really, the Galatian church, telling them that you can obtain righteousness by the keeping of the law. Uh, here's Paul, a former Judaizer, a former Pharisee, telling all of these Galatians, I've been there, I've done that, and I can tell you not just by the testimony of God's own word, but by my own personal testimony. The law didn't save me, Christ did. Christ saved Paul, because Christ is the Savior. And then Paul further goes into this book explaining what exactly the gospel is, because although these Galatians have... Initially, at some point, been introduced to the law. They have, they, although they have been introduced to the gospel, they have left the gospel, and they need to be brought back to the basics because they have obviously neglected it. Never, ever forsake an opportunity to go back to the basics of Christianity. The basics of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't just Sunday school learning for Christians. The gospel is not baby food, it is Christian food. It is what the Christian lives by, the law of Christ and his saving power to everybody, and his sanctifying power for the Christian. You and I, in some way or another, are an act of God. God saved us and God is changing us, and all he asks of us is our faith, our dependence, our trust in him, and what he's done for us. And now at this point, at the, end of the, at the end of the book of Galatians, Paul is approaching the gospel in a more practical matter because proper faith in the proper object leads to a proper lifestyle. Just as the Holy Spirit has given us the faith and has introduced us to the saving power of Jesus Christ, so as we maintain our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes that gospel, makes that Christian message alive to us. Meaning, not only are we saved from the devourer, not only are we hang on. Meaning that not only are we saved from the dominion of sin, but we are saved from the wages of sin. And the Holy Spirit wants to make that a reality in our lives, in the actual victory over sin in our lives. And in exchange for the victory over sin and the taking away of our sins, in that place, the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ, the renewing of our minds. Paul would 
say in the book of Galatians to these people, he would say, and it's famous, it's one of his most famous statements in the New Testament, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me through me. It's being conformed further into the image of Christ, and gospel faith has evidence for that faith. You and I don't just start doing godly things after we get saved so that we can keep that favor with God. We have the same favor with God right now as we did the day that we got saved. And for me to tell you that that's not the case would be false doctrine because I can't add to or hold in my own strength the favor that Christ has given me, the favor that he holds for me in the eyes of God. That is who I depend on. I don't do Jesus' job in my life. I don't do the Spirit's job in my life. If I try to do that, God's not going to honor that because that's not walking by faith. At least it's not walking by faith in Him. It's walking by faith in myself and in my own strength, and the Lord will not honor that. We've seen cases of people, and some, maybe some of us in here have know this through personal experience, where you think that you have it, that you have the strength, that you have the wisdom in and of yourself to live for God. That, you know, it was good that Jesus saved me, but now I can do things by myself since I'm already saved. You know that mentality we've seen people carry with it. Some of us have had to learn the hard way that that's not the mentality that God wants us to walk by. And it's easy for God to let us do things in our own strength so that we can fall And that failure is not always, it's never glamorous. Sometimes that failure is a little dramatic, and I say dramatic for lack of a better word. Nobody wants to fail God, and especially no Christian. No Christian in their right mind wants to fail God in their sin. Whenever you fail, that does not mean that you lose your salvation every time that you sin. But failure is still failure. Sin is still sin. The sin problem is always somewhere in our lives. We don't teach here the idea that you and I can be sinlessly perfect here on this earth. Uh, But we are in a process of being changed. And a part of that process comes with the reality of our sin. Because if we're not caught up with the reality of our sin, then we don't have the conscious desire to give our sin that we know about to God for Him to deal with. And God just might let us fall sometimes. Not fall from grace, but just fail in regards to us living for Him so that in our failure we can look up and realize in our weakness that we are to continually depend on Christ. The gospel is more than salvation. It is the Christian life. The day you got saved it was the most important day of your life. And the doctrine of salvation is the most important doctrine that you're ever going to believe in. But by the same power that I got saved by, that same power keeps me in this Christian life. What did Paul say to the Colossians? He said, just as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. Walk in Christ by grace through faith. So why did I go into all of that? Because you need to know how to live for God. Much of Paul's teachings deals with, as I've heard it said, how to do the what to do. Everybody knows that living right is a good thing, but what does it mean to live right? And how do I live right? Because I see the church today, so many people trying so hard 
to get right with God through fasting or through some glorious prayer life. And we believe in fasting, we believe in prayer, but people depend on these things to get them victory, even seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit for victory over sin, and they just don't get it. Knowing your source, being kept at that source that God wants you to be kept at, that is what will guarantee victory over the sin in your life. Victory over sin is not found in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not found in fasting. It's not found in your prayer life. It'll always be day after day after day in the person and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you and I, by definition, as the definition given to us in the scriptures, we are being brought, we have been actually brought from darkness to light. And while that light, that light living, Christ called it a life and life more abundant, while that life may not be totally realized right now, the Bible does teach, calls it the blessed hope. There's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ where mortality will put on immortality. Corruption will put on incorruption. There's coming a day where we will truly be just as holy as God is holy. And all of that ability, all of that access is thanks to Jesus and what he's done for you and I. He won the battle that you and I got ourselves caught up in. He won that victory. That victory over sin is not for you and I to win. That victory is for you and I to accept what Paul talks about to the Romans, that you and I are more than conquerors. We're not the conquerors. Christ is the conqueror. But in accepting the victory that he shares with us, that does make us more than a conqueror. Because you and I didn't win this fight, but we have the victory that Christ gave for us. Amen. So what Paul is talking about here towards the end of Galatians is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is basically identifying a Christian. It is identifying the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now that you and I have accepted Jesus Christ in our lives as our Lord and Savior, there is a change that naturally takes place in our lives. Last week I talked a little bit about the, a little bit, I kept y'all here for like over an hour, we're talking about the fruit of the flesh that Paul talks about before he gets to talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the flesh, sin, it's important to know what the fruit of the flesh is. And he gives us a little list. I'd like to reread through that. It's just a few verses in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. In other words, evident. They're obvious. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that last statement there in verse 21, let's talk about that for a second. The main theme of Galatians is the theme of justification by faith, that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in absolutely nothing or no one alone, aside from that. And then here Paul is saying that the people who do this, these bad things 
will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what's Paul doing? Is he preaching a different gospel? Is he telling them after telling the Galatians all throughout this book that you're only saved by faith alone? Is he now suddenly telling them, has he changed his mind and is now telling them that, oh, but you also got to do good things to get to heaven? Paul is not doing that. Whenever a tree grows, whenever the seed is planted, that tree deepens its roots further the older it gets. And the deeper the roots are, if you've ever seen a chart of how the tree and the roots go, the deeper the roots, more often than not, the bigger the tree is, the more firm a foundation the tree has established itself in, and the more, uh, whatever you would call it, the tree is. And the production of the fruit of the tree, all of that is a natural process. You don't rush the growth of a tree. You don't rush any of that. It's totally natural. And an apple tree produces apples, not oranges. I'm not trying to be simplistic, but a Christian naturally produces Christ-like behavior. And what Paul is saying in that, in this text, both talking about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, he's not saying that if you do bad things, well, I've got to be careful how I word this, what he's saying is that the fruit of the flesh is fruit of those who are rooted in the flesh. And to be rooted in the law, to be rooted in your own performance, is to be rooted in the flesh. And if you're rooted in the flesh, you're not rooted in the spirit. And if you're not rooted in the spirit, that means you're not saved to begin with. We've been talking about this a lot. Uh, you'd imagine, honestly, that the Lord wants us to know something in this place, that there is literally no such thing as an in-between Christianity. Nobody was ever half saved. It never happened. There is no, it's non-existent. There is no in-between Christianity. You, you either say yes to the Lord or you say no to the Lord. There is no I guess with Jesus. God is not going to accept that. And the fruit of the Christian life, it's important because, look, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, especially for a Pentecostal circle like this church right here, it is important to learn about the fruit of the Spirit because much of Pentecostal tradition centers the holy Christian life, not really around the fruit of the Spirit as much as we have in times past, the gifts of the Spirit, and the problem with that is that God does not speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a gift for the church. Nobody can prophesy over God, though. God wants you and I to be more like Him. The gifts have their purpose for the church. And really, they have their purpose for the church to the world and to the church at the same time. But we're not talking about that. And here's Paul, who, as he said to the Corinthians, spoke in tongues more than anybody else. He saw at least that was the way that he saw it. I mean, this is a tongue-talking man of God. But he knows that your holiness, your consecration, isn't just surrounded by how often you speak in tongues. It's how much you are actually like Jesus Christ. How much you're actually like God himself. Jesus said to be holy for your Father in heaven is holy. And that's a command. It's not a suggestion. And it's a command that goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. God is your standard of holiness. And the fruit of the Spirit is not prophecy. It's not speaking in tongues. 
but it is the Christian life. So let's talk this morning about what exactly these fruits of the Spirit are. In verse 22, before uh, Paul goes any further, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, the fruit of the Spirit. And you and I live in a country today that has absolutely no idea what love really is. Um, God is the one who establishes what love is. We know this. Love is only defined as God defines it and really nothing else. Anything outside of God's boundary uh, morally that he has established is sinful. We know this. When it comes to the church, though, what I think a lot of people forget is that God's love for you literally saved your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what a statement. For God so loved the world. The world. Now, literally, that word world in the Greek, it is literal. It's not referring to the spirit of the world, the mentality of the world, the sinfulness of of the world, it, it's literal. It literally refers to the literal inhabitants of the earth, and I stress that word literal a lot because if you ever have somebody who tries to tell you that that's not talking about every last person and more, it's it's a literal word. World means world in John three sixteen. But what is the world? The world is against the spirit of God. The world operates by the spirit of their own flesh, their own performance, their own intelligence. And they honestly, the doctrine of the world is that God is just going to have to be okay with whatever I choose. And it's very, at times, aggressively against God. And what, what, what is the teaching? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nobody asked for Jesus to die on the cross. Nobody ever asked for God to send down His Son to be sacrificed for us. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels... You'll find that just about any time that Jesus talks about him being lifted up, which referred to his hour, which referred to him being crucified, that statement was always, even among his own 12 disciples, it was always met with this weird hostility because Jesus dying for the sin of the world was so unideal. Nobody wanted that to happen. But God knew what they needed. God knows what we need, and what we need above all else is grace. And God has made His grace, His love, no more evident than what He did for us at the cross of Calvary. Paul then talks about peace, or no, he talks about joy. Joy is often very synonymous with faith in the Bible. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That's not referring to just some dry emotion, the joy of the Lord is just very alike to faith in the Bible, because it's not your happiness that grants you victory with God, it's your faith that connects you to God to begin with, believing that Christ and what he did for us is final, that it's a finished work, and in, in accepting that. Even when we go through a tough time in this life, a trial, a tribulation, we still have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord isn't just applicable to those who are living easy, to those who are living in a big house with a swimming pool in their backyard. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But anybody, anybody, everybody has access to this specific joy because it's a joy that surpasses every trial. 
if you're working around a bunch of people at work who just don't know God and their lifestyle shows for it, you still have access to the joy of the Lord because your name has been solidified in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's there for eternity as long as you just hold on by faith. It's there forever. God has no plans of ever taking your name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. It's just scripture. And that's a great source of joy. It's a great source of joy. Paul talks about peace. And the first thing whenever we hear that word peace is the peace that surpasses all understanding that Paul talks to the Philippians about. And let's talk about that a little bit. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from a jail cell. And he was in jail uh, to begin with for preaching the gospel. Whenever somebody goes to jail, whenever somebody goes to prison, you imagine it's for something like murder or anything along those lines. You don't imagine somebody going to jail just for preaching the gospel. But it happened back then in the Roman Empire. It happens in a lot of countries today still. It's just a reality. And here Paul is, a man in a circumstance that's really beyond his control. Whenever he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that does not translate to I can be a superhero. That means I can be content wherever I'm at. Because Paul spoke of a peace of God to these Philippians. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Why in the world, whenever the world is exposed to salvation in Christ, would their response be to lock up whoever preached that gospel to them? On the surface of things, the wickedness of the world is just beyond comprehension. Because whenever you share the gospel with the world, it's almost as though sharing this treasure that you've gotten a hold of and what you're willing to not just share but to give that treasure to whosoever will just take it by faith. And instead of accepting this glorious salvation, the world has persecuted it for over 2,000 years. And at first, it's just confusing. How could you have such easy access into the eternal presence of God and reject that consciously? It's confusing. The wickedness of the world really just knows no depth. You would need an act of God to be risen above those shadows as Isaiah would prophesy about it. And that's exactly what the Lord does every time that he saves somebody. He rises them up above the shadows of this world, that while the rest of the world remains lost in those shadows, you and I are set upon that solid rock, Christ Jesus. So you and I know where we are in Christ. We have a solid identity in Christ. We're not confused about who we are in Christ. And you think the world in this age of confusion would love that clarity, but for the past 2,000 years, not only have they rejected that clarity, they have persecuted it. They've persecuted the truth. But even in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that we go through, and all that we've seen and all that we've experienced, there is a peace that surpasses that. That means I don't have to be stressed in this world because I know for one thing, this world is not my home. My home is with Christ. My home is in eternity somewhere. It's not of this temporal, finite world. My home is in heaven where the Lamb of God is 
the life. That's where I am in Christ. And one day that's where I will be. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And that's where my home is. And although as bizarre as this world can seem sometimes, I don't have to lose sleep over what happens in this world because I have access to the infinite, divine peace of the living God. And that's something that the Holy Spirit brings is peace. Paul talks about long-suffering, and long-suffering refers to very, I don't want to say intense, but it refers to, in a way, patience. And that is a characteristic of God, and you know this right off the bat, because God did not destroy you and I in the very first time that we ever sinned against Him. We know about the great Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament era. God had given Israel and Judah, it was Judah, God had given Judah well over an entire century to repent of their sins against him before the Babylonian captivity actually took place. He had given them such a long time, and God gives everybody their whole life, however long that is for each individual, an opportunity to repent and to turn to Christ. God's patience coincides with his love for us. It's not just a good patience in a generic term, but it's a saving patience. Because it's a patience that withholds eternal judgment for each of us. And the Christian has that same patience, or at least has access to that same patience. We look at the sin, the confusing sin, the depth of this world's wickedness that we just don't understand... And our idea to that should not be to just immediately condemn this world because we can't condemn anybody to begin with. Only God can condemn a soul. But like that, we are to be patient with this world. You and I don't know who's going to be saved tomorrow. And as tragic as it is to think, you and I really don't know who's going to be walking with God tomorrow at the same time. We just don't know who's going to die saved and who's going to die lost. I've seen Christians who are so quick. To look at a very famous person who's doing bad things. I'm not thinking of anybody specific, just in general. They look at a big politician who stands for ungodly things. And I've seen people be so quick to put into theory about who could be the Antichrist and who who isn't. Who's a reprobate and who isn't. You and I don't know who is a reprobate and who isn't. You and I don't know who the Antichrist is and who isn't either. And we don't know these things, and if nothing else, this is just my opinion. We don't know these things for the same reason that we don't know when the rapture of the church will happen. If we knew when the rapture of the church would happen, no doubt most of the church would only choose to Christian up whenever the rapture actually happened, or at least up until that short time before it actually happened. And if we knew who was reprobate and who wasn't, there's not a chance that we would take the world out to, or there's not a chance that we would take the gospel out to the world if we knew. Because knowing these things is not a privilege that you and I have. Because if we did know these things, it would expose something about us that we really don't want to acknowledge. And that's the fact that we just might not be as loving as we think we are. We might not be as long-suffering as we think we are. But by the power of the Spirit as He moves and He operates in our lives uh, through the cross to us directly, 
as he changes us, that long-suffering and that peace and that love grows to the point that even you would want to take the gospel to those who have been turned over to a reprobate mind. We see a homosexual dancing in the street these days, and many Christians are so quick to say that that's a reprobate. You don't know that. You don't know that. You have not a clue who is reprobate and who isn't. And you would be very surprised at the testimonies of some of the people that are in this sanctuary right now, who if it really was up to the world, and even up to much of the body of Christ, if it really was up to all of them, there's not a chance that some of us in this place could have ever been saved. But the grace of God in Christ Jesus looked past the sad standards of this world and saved us anyways, because we're not depending on the world or the church. We depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know in whom we have believed. So you look at that alcoholic. You look at that homosexual dancing in the street. You look at all these people who are prostituting their bodies for sexual pleasure in this world today. You look at them and you don't think to yourself that that's a reprobate. You see a lost soul just like you once were. And you know that God can do in their life what he's done in your life. You know that God can do that. Paul talks about gentleness. Gentleness. We, you know, some people in the church get offended uh, whenever they hear the phrase, God is a gentleman. <laughs> uh, I didn't mean to breathe in that loud. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the thing about God being a gentleman is that the Bible says he's a gentleman. If gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, that means the Spirit is a gentleman. And that means that God is a gentleman. And how is God a gentleman? Gentle has to do with not being so forceful and uh, just whatever. Gentle, the same way that you hold an infant child, that's the way that God holds us, really. He doesn't just, just, just pull us or just yank our arms off to wherever he wants us to be. In his long suffering, in his patience, and in his love, and his joy that he has over us, the Bible teaches that God rejoices every time somebody gets saved. And in the original Hebrew, in that psalm, I believe it is, I didn't mean to talk about this, where it talks about uh, the Lord rejoicing uh, in the original Hebrew language, that actually refers to a, a dance of celebration. So... If you ever hear anybody complain about dancing in the church, just know that every time a soul gets saved, God just loves to dance over those who have been saved. Yeah, be careful that you don't buy into this Americanized view of God, that he does nothing but sit in a chair all day. God is divine. He is better than you and I, which means he can dance better than you and I, and that's exactly what he does, because, which is what the Bible says, all right? But Paul talks about gentleness, gentleness, and his patience, and his grace, God knows just the amount of care that we need. Rebelling against the will of God does not always mean that God's going to send a fish to eat you for three days, but sometimes, like the prophet Elijah, what did God do with him when he had ran uh, from where God wanted him to be? God cared for Elijah. The Lord gave that man water and food to drink and eat so that his body and that his mind even could be refreshed because God loves us and he cares about us. And he's not so willing to cast us away. He isn't. 
He loves us and he is gentle with us. This does not mean that he forsakes any of his own commands or anything like that, but he deals with us gently because he operates to us on the basis of his grace. Goodness, God is very good, amen? One of the anthems of the church right now is that song, The Goodness of God, because we know that God can be good. We know how good God can be. All my life, He has been very faithful, and He has been so good. He's been very faithful. That's another fruit of the Spirit, faith. Faith, that is the main link between you and God, is your faith in Christ, your dependence, your trust in the Lord Himself. It's your faith. And it's a good thing because God's grace to us is technically His faithfulness to us in our lives. He's just so faithful, we don't deserve any of His faithfulness. That's why we call it grace, because everything that we get from the Lord, we don't deserve any of it. But His faithfulness to us is a saving and it's a sanctifying. It's a changing for the better kind of faithfulness. Meekness. Meekness. You ever heard that phrase, uh, don't confuse meekness for weakness? And that phrase is often used uh, to remind the Christian that, you know, we're not a doorstep or a doormat, whatever whatever they are. It's often used to remind us that, you know, we are not uh, meager people. Uh, but at the same time, meekness. You and I are not called to be macho man or macho lady for the world. You and I are not called to lift the world above the shadows. These are something that God does. And in realizing just how dependent we are of God, that's a humbling factor for us. And in that humility, that this realization of dependence and faith that we need just to make it through this world, that humility gives us this great spirit and mentality of meekness because it's a reflection of our dependence on Christ. Temperance, temperance, temperance. There's a there's a fruit of the spirit that you know we kind of need to talk about a little bit. Uh, the Bible is very big about you not. Okay, do not let the sun go down on your anger. We all know this. We all know this. We know that there is a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. And I'm not trying to add to the Bible with what I'm about to say. I'm just saying it might be in our best interest to not ever try to get angry. I mean, whenever we looked over the fruit of the flesh last week, one thing that we noticed was that one thing that all of that, all of this bad fruit had in common was anger in some way, shape, or form. Anger is not in and of itself righteous, even though there is a righteous anger that a Christian can have, but our, our, our identity, our personality to surround that in anger, that's not good. I've seen uh, Christians um, uh, whose job, I won't go into any specific detail, but whose jobs involve them uh, talking to people on a telephone all day. I saw one person who is very intelligent, when it comes, I mean, I don't doubt his intelligence when it comes to the things of the Bible at all, but this poor lady called in one time to his job, and I just watched and listened to him. Um, he got so frustrated with this lady, and at the end of it, he didn't hang up on her, but you'd have thought that he did with how quick he was to hang up the phone, and there was just this aggressive uh, vibe to it, just this almost maliciousness to it, 
and it does not reflect the character of God very well. Because when God gets angry, it's never good news for the people that he's angry against. And understandably, temperance, which is very synonymous with long-suffering, which is very synonymous with faith and grace and uh, gentleness, for obvious reasons, and mirroring the character of Christ, you and I can see how temperance should not be a part of the Christian life. Because it's not the part of God's life, or uh, how do I put that? It does not mirror the grace of God in Christ Jesus as it should, or at least the way that God wants it to for us. Paul says, against such there is no law. Anybody who walks by the Spirit, that's not somebody who's walking in the law, somebody who's walking in their own efforts. Against such there is no law. Nobody who walks in the law can produce this fruit, this evidence in their lives. Because they don't have the power source, if you will, if you'll take that phrase, if you'll take that phrase, power source, to give them the power to live this Christian life. The law doesn't give you the ability to live the Christian life. That's a supernatural thing that comes from God, just to live for God successfully. Paul says, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. Everything that defines a lost person, you and I, all, all of us, we put it down the day we got saved at the foot of Calvary. And although there might be some, as I once heard it said, clinging vines to the fall in our lives, these are vines that the Lord is more than capable and more than willing to take care of himself as long as we continually walk by faith in who Christ is and what he's done for us. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And verse 25 is just something that some Christians have got to know. There's more to Christianity than just the knowledge of Christian doctrine. There's more to it than the knowledge, than your theological prowess, whatever you want to call it. There's more to it than the brain stuff, than the intellectual side, than the wisdom of it. But Christianity is all about, who'd have thought, being a Christian. It's all about living for God. Your religious phrases and you being able to quote the Bible so well, as impressive as that might be, it's not good enough. Because there is a fruit, there is an evidence that shows to the church, to the world, something that they might not be able to see. God knows the heart. God has no trouble figuring out who's really in Christ and who really isn't. But in demonstrating our Christ-likeness to the church and to the world, there is an evidence for that. And that evidence has a lot to do with the doing away of the sin in our life. They call it victorious Christian living because it is the victory that Christ afforded to us totally realized as we walk this walk. Christianity is all about walking the walk. You and I are not between a rock and a hard place where we either just have all of our doctrine right or whether we actually live for God. No, both. You and I have, you and I strive to have all of our doctrine in order and we live for God. This isn't rocket science. This is the life that God has called you and I to be in. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. You and I are not called 
to live for God, just so the world can see us living for God. You and I are to be reflections of who Christ is. That automatically denotes any mentality, any heart's desire of the world looking at all of us for who we are. Look at me, I'm a Christian. That doesn't sound like a Christian if you ask me. A Christian doesn't say, look at me, I'm a Christian. A Christian says, look at Christ. He's the Savior. He's the one who makes a Christian. Amen. So, the fruit of the flesh is very obvious. The fruit of the flesh sinfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. And the reason why Paul puts these in place is because this is the fruit of the gospel in the Christian life. It's the fruit of the gospel. And I know I've mentioned it before, this can sound very repetitious sometimes. The book of Galatians is a very back to the basics and at times even seeming repetitious book. But again, going back to why Paul We need to know why Paul is writing this book. He's literally writing to a group of people who he brought the gospel to, who knew the gospel. Further, who got to experience the blessings that the gospel gave to them in the changing of their lives. And then, and then they sold themselves out for the law. And to this day, too many, too many Christians, few at least, too many Christians fall into that trap. Well, I got saved, now I can live for God in my own strength. It's never happened before, it's never going to happen. As long as you and I have sinned within the past year, if nothing else, there's always a need to go back to the basics. You and I not just need to know what to do for God, we need to know how to do it. And there's no how-to, what to do, apart from continued faith in Christ and what He's done for us. Because I can't do this in myself. I can't preach out of my own charisma, let alone live for God out of my own ability. That's never happened. And it's never going to happen for anybody. But if I just continually depend on God Himself, Paul says, even in jail, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean that I can bust my way out of prison. It means that wherever I am, I am still a work in progress in the eyes of God. I'm still being conformed further into the image of Jesus Christ. Wherever I'm at, whether I'm in the palace of Rome or whether I'm in some little jail cell, I am just as saved and just as secure right now as I was yesterday. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus Christ is because of who he was and because of who he, he always is going to be. Amen? Amen? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this day that you've given us, God. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. And God, I thank you, Lord, for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that operates in our lives and through our lives as we gain continually a deeper understanding of your word. God, I ask that you continually lead us in down this great path of righteousness, righteousness that has been paved by the blood of your only begotten Son. And God, once again, I ask that you be glorified uh, um, in our lives today. Lord, constantly remind us, bring to our remembrance, Lord, what we learn from your Bible as we read it. Because, God, in you and you alone can we find that contentment. Can we find the source for this great fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. This fruit that is the realization of our faith in Christ and what he 
he's done for us. Living out this great salvation in Christ. We thank you, God, and we'll never be able to thank you enough for what you've done for us and for who you are. Lord, we thank you, Lord, and we say all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.